Hello, this is Jeff Sackman, and welcome to episode 12 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. With me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi, Carl. Hey, Jeff. You can find all of our episodes at podcast.tennisabstract.com, and a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about, if this episode is in line with previous episodes, is also at tennisabstract.com with the blog there showing my research and occasional guest articles from Carl Bialik himself. So we've got a lot to talk about two weeks out now from Wimbledon. The grass court season is fully underway. A lot of big-name players are already in action on the grass. Um, Several more skipping this upcoming week with injuries and desire for more rest. But still a lot to talk about with the last week of action and this next week coming up. And let's start, Carl, with Roger Federer. Things did not go exactly according to plan for Roger entering that first grass court tournament in Stuttgart. It seemed like a pretty easy draw for him. It's just a 250. But Carl, it did not go as planned, did it? No, although the funny thing about any loss by Federer that's unexpected, much like any unexpected loss for any top player, is that you'll get the commenters on Twitter and elsewhere saying, well, he must have tanked that. That must be what happened because he pretty much dominated every stat against Tommy Haas in his first match, in Federer's first match in Stuttgart. Haas was, uh, had already played his way into the second round with a good win, and yet Federer could not take a match point in the second set tiebreaker. He could not take almost all of his break points, and Haas knocked him out in the very first match Federer played on grass, in the first match he played, period, except for exhibitions in the last two months. And what was the stat that you tweeted that th- this was this was the first tournament in how long that on grass that Federer lost his first match? First since 2002, so first since he was 20 and not yet a major champ or a number one player. That is crazy. I guess Tommy Haas is a little bit more formidable of an opponent, at least at least at some point in the past than a lot of the players he's opening his season against. And we also know that they're good friends and. Federer seems to sometimes let up a little bit against the guys who he really likes personally. Uh, What I found interesting was that, as you point out, he wasn't able to convert match points, but he did get them, which is another interesting kind of quirky stat, is that, of course, Federer has dominated this year, but with those two losses now, for one thing, both of them are against pretty close to the lowest-ranked players he's played all year, uh, Haas and Evgeny Donskoy. And in both of those two losses, he's held match point. So, of course, in the matches that he wins, of course, he held match point then as well. So every match Roger Federer has played this year, he's been at least one point away from victory and didn't go back and, and find other players that uh, had fallen, followed a pattern like that. I don't have that kind of data going back more than a few years. But it does seem pretty unusual that he hasn't had a bad match yet, even if he should have won this one and should have won that one against Donskoy. Um and I'm guessing, Carl, you'll you'll agree with me that there's not really anything to worry about here. He's still the presumptive favorite for Halla, right? Well, sure. I mean, you could say that he shouldn't have been in a position where losing that match point led to him then losing the match. It is a reminder of how wondrous and unpredictable the tennis scoring system is in other sports if you're just about to close something out and then you lose a point, it doesn't really matter. In tennis, everything can change. So if he wins that match point, we say, okay, second set got a little tight, but it's a good, comfortable win. And then there's a very good chance he goes on and wins the tournament. Now, now we wonder, but yeah, it doesn't change much for Halle. 
it, it is a reminder that even when he won the three titles he has this year, he had some close calls along the way, and we tend not to remember them when someone survives them. But especially in Miami against Burdick, I think there was a match point saved, or at least Burdick had uh, advantages late in that third set. And then against Kyrgios, three tiebreak sets in the semis. So he certainly had close calls in Miami. He had close calls in Australia, three fifth sets that he won 6-3, two of them quite close 6-3 sets as far as 6-3 sets go. So, yeah, not not ever a sure thing, even against very low-ranked players, and maybe more than in the past, he's he's playing to the level of competition this year. Yeah, it's it's never easy in tennis. There's the most overwhelming performances, unless we're talking about Nadal on play, are often less overwhelming than they look, and sometimes the worst performances are better than they look. Um, speaking of worst performances, it, it's funny. Last week, it, it looked like there was going to be a quarterfinal in Stuttgart between Roger Federer and Misha Zverev. And you mentioned that their match from a few years ago when Federer double bageled Zverev. And you, you suggested that it wouldn't happen again, that this time Zverev would be a lot more successful. And it turned out that he was, but he didn't have to play Federer to do it because <laughs> Federer didn't get that far. But... Again, um, Zverev has to be cursing the draw gods this week in Hala. If they both win their first round match, that will be a second round in Hala between Federer and Misha Zverev. But beyond that is where I think the draw gets more interesting. Because, of course... Just just before you get too far into the draw, I should quickly mention that after Haas beat Federer and Zverev beat Haas, Lopez beat Zverev and Puy beat Lopez. So I guess Federer won the wooden spoon. He did, although t- technically wouldn't the bye... I was thinking I guess the bye one too. Bye has such a bad record this year. I'm really hoping it turns it around later in the season. Yeah, no chances in Halle, unfortunately. Uh, or Wimbledon. No at that tournament. Or Wimbledon, of course. Although, if um, if Golbus... Is Golbus going to be fit again to play for Wimbledon? I don't think so. Is he officially bye? Is he playing the role of bye? I was just thinking of a, of a player who might be standing in effectively for bye. I mean, we also have such grass court specialists as Sara Rani and Paolo Lorenzi potentially in the draw, so there could be other candidates. Speaking of Paolo Lorenzi, actually, uh, this came up on, on Twitter a few hours ago, that with Lorenzi's challenger win in on a clay court, of course, last week in Caltanissetta, I think I have that name right, that means that he will likely be seated at Wimbledon. He'll get that 32 seed. And even though the Wimbledon has its own seeding formula, which we will get to in a, in a couple minutes, uh, Wimbledon can only rearrange the seeds according to their deal with the ATP. So they can't make players who aren't seeded seeded or vice versa. So even though Lorenzi has no business being seeded in really any grass court tournament, and certainly not Wimbledon, he will have that 32 seed, which I mean, it's really something. Really, um, it will be some opportunities really in one spot in the draw. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that first rounder between 32 seed Paolo Lorenzi and unseated Benoit Pair. That'll be a great one. I'd like to think there's some polite muttering in the All England Club today about how a guy could get earn a seed by prepping for Wimbledon at a clay challenger. That's got to really ruffle some feathers. It is interesting that he's still doing that because if you are Paulo Lorenzi or someone like Diego Schwartzman, who of course we love on this podcast, then even if you are in the top 50 or top 40 or top 33 in the case of Lorenzi, then it's still beneficial 
or at least there, there's something positive to come out of playing a clay court challenger during grass court season, which is, is so strange because the, the point differential is so great. But it does make sense that if, if you're Lorenzi, you don't expect to do any damage at all on a grass court and you can go pick up or defend, whatever the case may be, 80 points, 100 points, I think maybe as, as many as 125 at a challenger if you win it. And there are a few guys who are so good at vulturing those clay court challengers that when they do, they have a pretty good chance. Especially when most people are focusing on grass, yeah. And not not only that, this week, I think this past week, there were three different clay court challengers. Um, the Caltanissetta one, there was one in Lisbon that Oscar Ota won, and um, the Lyon challenger that we have something to say about as well, with Felix Auger-Aliassim, the 16-year-old champion there. Um, but all three of those challengers were on clay, so that means that first, you take out everyone who wants to play on grass court. You have multiple grass court 250s. Then you take out everybody who prefers grass and is playing grass court qualifying. Then you have 96 main draw spots in clay court challengers. So the, none of these are particularly strong draws, I don't think. I haven't quantified it, but I, I think it's safe to say that it's it's hardly on the high end even for a challenger. So in terms of vulturing points, this has got to be one of the best weeks for a clay court guy to do it. So let's this go back to This is their Wimbledon, Jeff. But yes, let, let's go back to grass. <laughs> yeah, if, if you are a, a clay court specialist outside of the top 30, then your Wimbledon is the Caltanissetta Challenger in early June. Um, I, think, I think ATP has a new hashtag on the way. Clay court Wimbledon, <laughs> Caltanissetta. Watch out, next gen finals. So all the good stuff is happening in Italy. So back to the Holland draw. Speaking of Lorenzi, actually, he is playing on grass. I didn't realize this. All this talk about Lorenzi, I thought he was punting on the grass entirely. But no, he is in the draw, probably not for very long, since he's opening up against Alexander Zverev. But I find it interesting that the guys who are probably most dangerous to Federer this week at the the 500 are Dominic Thiem, who beat him on grass last year, Alexander Zverev, who beat him on grass last year, Paolo Lorenzi, of course, as we've mentioned, um, and Tommy Haas who beat him last week, and all those guys are in the bottom half of the draw. So assuming Federer can get that far, he'll only have to face one of them. There are a few people you might consider dangerous in the top half. His quarterfinal opponent is Luka Pui. Um, Ivo Karlovich is lurking in the in the other quarter, so he's a potential semifinalist. He's coming off a good week in Hertogenbosch. Um but let's talk about this seeding situation, Carl. Just, just um, quickly, we, since we did mention that Zverev must be cursing the draw gods, had that double bagel loss to Federer on grass before, and could face him here in the second round after avoiding him in Stuttgart, I would not count him out in that match at all. He's been playing so well, and <laughs> I, I, I doubt that he exactly feels a need for revenge against Federer for that loss, and, and certainly has a more recent, more painful loss to Federer from the Australian Open. But I, I think the way Federer can sometimes just struggle to return on grass, especially on like a freshly laid uh, grass court early this week, I could see him having trouble getting break points in that match. And since you mentioned the potential danger of that second rounder, his first round match is Yen Sun Liu, who... Speaking of grass specialist, vultures, 
he is a grass specialist. I mean, he, he is also a, a hardcore uh, challenger, vulture extraordinaire. He's sort of the, the hardcore equivalent of someone like Lorenzi because he goes and wins Asian challengers when other top 100 guys don't even show up. Uh, I think he holds the record for most challenger titles of anyone ever, I believe. But he is, as you point out, yes, grass court specialist. Didn't he beat Andy Roddick at Wimbledon a few years ago? Was that his big win? Yep, when Roddick was in the top 10, maybe in the top 5, yeah. Yeah, so a, a big win there. Not quite as big as beating Roger Federer would be, but maybe maybe beating Roddick in best of 5 is the equivalent of beating in a 30-something Federer uh, out of 500 where he presumably doesn't care quite as much, and it's still best of three. So even with the guys who have beaten Federer in the other half of the draw, there is, is some danger. It's hardly a foregone conclusion that he'll just walk away with these 500 points. And that does really matter. As I, as I was aiming for, I really want to talk about the Wimbledon seeding formula and what it means for Federer, because right now he is going to be the fifth seed at Wimbledon behind the rest of the big four and Stan Wawrinka. And if he doesn't do well at Halle, then I think he'll he'll be stuck in number five. He has to he has to pick up those points himself. But because of the way the Wimbledon formula works, it essentially double counts your grass court points from the past grass court season. So don't you don't you even as, get a little bit of credit for the one before? You do. You get the point. I think you get seventy five percent of the points from your best grass court event the previous. Like the the year before last year's Wimbledon, so you get double points for last year's Wimbledon plus every, this year's grass season, and then seventy five percent of your points from one event in the twelve months before that, which could include the Wimbledon two years ago, where he made so the final. Yeah, so so the gap in the Wimbledon rankings or the Wimbledon seeding formula is a lot closer than it is in the actual ranking because I don't I think Federer has a lot of space between him and Vavrinka in in the traditional formula. Um, After Vavrinka's run to the French Open final, yeah. And actually, as correcting myself as we go here, um, Vavrinka's in number three now. Djokovic is down at number four. But there's a, a 1,040 point gap between Federer and Djokovic in the official rankings. So nothing Federer can do can make that up. But if we go to the Wimbledon race, as my page slowly loads... It's currently being updated. Please refresh the page again <laughs> in a few seconds. That was anticlimactic. And this is an, an this is live radio, live folks. Direction. Live radio, live radio that you can't listen to as we're recording it. So we're it's all the all the negatives of live radio. <laughs> exactly. Um, but even though this is an awkward moment to push this site, I have to tell everybody about OpenEraRankings.com. This is where where I'm looking up right now the status of the Wimbledon rankings. And many of you are probably aware of the other live ranking site, LiveTennis.eu, which is fantastic. You know, the, the people who put together live rankings have so much admiration from me because I've toyed around with ranking formulas enough to know how hard it is to get all of the details of the rankings, what points are coming off and when, with weak staggers and zero pointers and all these arcane rules. And I could never make, my, make myself care enough or put in enough time to get all these details right. And, and these guys do. It's really impressive. And the one thing that the Open Era Rankings site has of interest right now that LiveTennis.eu doesn't have 
is the Wimbledon race. They worked out this whole formula, so most of the time, except for right this moment when I loaded the page, most of the time you can look this stuff up. And the other benefit of Open Era Rankings, it's an amazing project that uh, was hosted at Men's Tennis Forums for years, is I think it's one one main guy who did it, but there might be a team effort involved as well, who went back and rebuilt the the ATP ranking system for the late 60s, 70s, and early 80s, back when the ATP wasn't releasing rankings every week, or before 1973 they weren't releasing those sort of modern style rankings at all. And even some of the rankings that the ATP did do back in those days aren't available on the ATP website. So you have these situations where look at 1978 or something and the ATP website has four or six ranking updates for the whole year. I think 1982, the ATP website has no rankings for that entire year. But these guys at Open Era Rankings, they have every week from, I believe, 1968 through the mid-80s, which is, I mean, just mind-blowing how complex it is and how impressive it is. My guess is it's so, down right now because of this Lorenzi thing. I think Lorenzi broke the site. <laughs> I think he did, yes. So Let, Let's talk for a second about this Federer seeding implication. So it, it certainly makes the grass season more interesting. There's there's a f- scenario that I'm, I doubt would happen, but you could you could at least imagine that if he struggles again this week, he could consider taking a wild card into some event next week just to get those points. Although I guess the seed's already determined, so it would be a dumb move. But um, it, but at least you know it, it matters now that he lost early last week. It, does it? How much does it matter? So we're talking about the difference between him potentially having to face a top four player in the quarters as opposed to waiting until the semis. Uh, but there's no guarantee that everyone makes their appointed meeting. There's no guarantee that how much tougher that match is. Do you have like a rough sense of what this means in terms of uh, title win probability at Wimbledon? Like just really rough. I don't. I, I really don't. I, I had hoped to run some numbers, but it is pretty complicated to run through all these counterfactuals and build a hypothetical draw and all that stuff. Um, I mean, we could really, sort of say, oh, so let's say he's like one of the two or three top favorites and has something like a 25% chance. That seems 20 to 25%. Does that seem reasonable? I would guess my algorithm puts him higher as the number one, as the number one player on grass, which my system thinks he is, then I would say he's probably closer to 35. And I think the betting markets are a little more optimistic than that. Okay. Yeah, I would just think because it's a, f- you could see a few players who have a pretty good chance, including defending champion Andy Murray. Uh, but okay, so let's say it's thirty five percent. So now we're talking about maybe the difference between thirty five and thirty. Do you think it could be as big as that? I, I I'm guessing that when we run the numbers, it won't be much bigger than that. Um, what it really addresses is kind of the nightmare scenario. Is if Obviously, as you point out, yes, given the way that everyone's playing this year and the fact that Nadal is injured and, and not even, I don't think we're even 100% sure he's going to be able to play Wimbledon. He hasn't played well on, as well on grass for a while. And you have everything that Murray and Djokovic have failed to do this year. The odds that you're going to see all five of the top five in the quarterfinals is really low. But let's just say they do. That means one of the top five is going to have a path to the, to the title that goes through three of the other four. And I think that when you do run the numbers on the whole draw and you factor in the odds that, that, that 
one or more of these guys aren't going to make it to the quarters or the semis, then you're right. It might not affect the the end result that much. Um, but there is that nightmare scenario of, you know, Bavrinka quarter, Djokovic semi, Murray final, which would be an awful lot to ask of someone in their mid-30s. And before you say more about that, I did look up the odds. I, I was overstating it a little bit. Murray's actually the the favorite on the betting market at 3.8 to 1, so a little better than 25%. And then Federer is at 4.33 to 1, so he's a little worse than 25%. So your instinct was right between 20 and 25. And then after that, we have Nadal and Djokovic at about 7 to 1. And then Milos Ronic coming in at 16 to 1. But Wow, I'm surprised Vavrinka is in, in the top five there. Yeah, I think Ronic probably gets that because he of his performance last year. And Vavrinka has played better the last couple of years, but he used to have a reputation as really weak on grass. So he, he might not be far, far off. It certainly seems like he should be in, in that same ballpark. Although, now that I, I look up the full list, Vavrinka is 8th favorite. So after Ronic, Kyrgios is 6th, Zverev is 7th, which seems crazy optimistic to me. And then Vavrinka is eighth. I would comfortably put Vavrinka ahead of Zverev, and uh, I wouldn't put him that. He, his odds are less than half of Ronich's, which that seems wrong. I have a hard time with that. Yeah, Especially I think that's Ronich's overrating the importance of Ronich's run last year. It was impressive, but it was a year ago. But anyway, now that we we finally got the the Wimbledon ratings called up, Federer is out of fourth place by a hundred and five points. And, and Djokovic means, is not playing an ATP event this week, right? Right. As as is Nadal, not playing an event. Murray is playing Queen's Club, isn't he? Yes, and I think Vavrinka is too. Yes, he is. Uh, and, and Murray isn't part of this competition at all. He's, he's way, way, way beyond yeah. everyone else's reach. And I think that because Federer didn't win Stuttgart, he can't get further than fourth. Um, so it's really just a matter of whether Vavrinka or Federer will be the fourth seed, and the other one will be the fifth Djokovic. seed. Djokovic. Djokovic or Federer? No, oh. Vavrinka or Federer. Oh, because Djokovic passes Vavrinka because of his success at Wimbledon 2015, presumably. Exactly, yeah. So actually, in the Wimbledon seeding formula, Djokovic is number two ahead of Nadal. So as it stands now, it's almost certain it'll be Murray, Djokovic, Nadal, one, two, three, and then it's up to really this next week of results between Vavrinka and Federer. So if... If they both play the same, like both reach the semi or something like that, then it'll go to Vavrinka. If Federer wins and Vavrinka makes the final or fails to make the final, then it looks like it'll go to Federer. I'm not sure exactly what all the scenarios are because it depend- I think it will depend on what points are coming off for the ATP portion of the, of the point total. But Federer doesn't have this entirely in his power because if Vavrinka wins Queen's Club, then he locks up down the number four spot. But Federer can make it pretty likely uh, by winning Hala. So it matters a lot more than just Federer winning a tournament that he loves for the umpteenth time against a not tremendously great field. Uh, He does have that number four spot in... Uh, in play. It would be fun if they both make it, let's say, the quarters or semis and are playing at the same time for like both stadiums to be showing the other score during uh, changeovers and have Federer look up and see what stands up to and vice versa. 
Yeah, it, w- it would be really interesting. And one of the few times outside of the last week before the World Tour Finals that this sort of thing ever matters. And even there, it's all at one tournament. It, it, often these things play out at the Paris Masters two weeks before the World Tour Finals. Um, yeah, although kind of heading up to the... Uh, there is a special formula here, but there are also only 500 points on the line this week. So when you have 1,000-point masters leading up to the French and the U.S. Open, those can have big seating implications. We, we might not pay as much attention because they're also masters events, so they feel like they matter more. That's true. Uh, and it, it is kind of a unique situation here that because Vavrinka, because of Federer's time off and Vavrinka's playing so well and putting himself in the conversation so solidly with the top four, for some reason this seems much more pressing than other times in the past that basically there are five guys, all of whom deserve a top four seed. And whoever doesn't get them in that worst case scenario could have a really nasty draw because of it, being that fifth player on the outside looking in. Well, I hope Rafa doesn't win Wimbledon, but that would continue the streak, that would extend a streak to two of slams where it ended up not mattering because only four of them entered. That's true. I, I hope he does. Um, now, Carl, I want to talk about Nadal in a moment, but before we get there, just in general, what do you think about this this complicated approach to reseeding a tournament. I mean, every other tournament all year long just uses ATP rankings. Wimbledon is the only tournament still hanging on, making its own rules. They have to take the the players who the ATP sees to tournament, but they they reorder them as we talked about with Lorenzi before. Do you think that's a, a good idea for the tournament? Is it unnecessarily complicated? What do you think? I am almost entirely in favor of it. I think it used to be more arbitrary and more punitive sort of as a result of players who were otherwise excellent but didn't have great grass results. And as a result, many of them would would skip Wimbledon partly out of protest and and it sort of created this vicious cycle of of players feeling like they were being disrespected by Wimbledon and then not playing and so not getting good on grass and then continuing to be disrespected. I think now it's it's a transparent system. It, as you say, it's not that punitive in that if you deserve the seed, you get the seed. It's just a question of which one you get. It rarely changes things that much, but it does usually change them in a direction that makes sense. Like there were times when, let's say, Venus Williams' seed was higher than her ranking, but that makes really good sense. She's great on grass and has won Wimbledon five times. So I, I, I like it, except that we're having to go to some unofficial site, as great a site as it is, but one that will maybe go, you know, that, not that the official site stays up all the time either. But I, I, I wish that this were an official ranking that the Wimbledon site was keeping tabs of daily. One of the nice things going into the World Tour Finals is you get daily updates from the ATP about where everyone stands in terms of qualification. I'd like to see that from Wimbledon too. And frankly, it would benefit them. It would, it would drive interest in exactly this, this sort of question. Uh, instead, they make a big deal of announcing what the seeds are when anyone who's done the math could know. And I wish they were just totally transparent about this is where everyone stands. This is what's at stake. And maybe it would encourage more grass court play in the lead ups. If someone like Lorenzi could do the math about, you know, he doesn't care if he's a 32 seed or a 31 seed, but if maybe someone who's on the cusp between 16 and 17 or eight or nine or four and five, if, if it's all out there for everyone to see, I think it only encourages more grass play and more commitment to the grass season. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is a big 
really continuing disappointment that the ATP and WTA aren't doing more to embrace live rankings because you, you see the people who are working for them, you know, the, their PR staff uh, are often referring to you know, who will be, what needs to happen for a player to be number one or number whatever on Monday, and sometimes they will refer specifically to live rankings and very occasionally even link to these live ranking sites, but it's crazy to me that they haven't embraced it further. And part of the reason is surely just because it's really complicated and it would, it would be hard for an organization that has a difficult time putting a working website on the internet to do something that's this intricate. Um, but if you think about how much sports is driven by you know, postseason matchups, even postseason home field advantage or home ice advantage, the the fact that tennis throws a lot of that away is, is really a shame because those of us who really care about that stuff, we will figure it out. But you're right to point out that, you know, it's fantastic that this Romanian guy has put together this amazing website, but is this really the way that Wimbledon wants its fans to engage with Wimbledon? Is a website that just got thrown up a few months ago that is unofficial, even if it's incredibly accurate, um, it, it can't be the best way to do things. And... It, it seems like these events should be doing, doing as much as possible to build excitement and especially on, on the top players achieving things because of their on-court performance. Uh, one of the knocks against the way the ATP has promoted players in the past has been that they've focused so much on the top guys because the top guys have been so promotable. But here's a situation to promote the top guys because of what they're really achieving. I mean, you've got this race to the finish line between Federer and Vavrinka of all people. And yeah, it's only a Wimbledon seed, but at the same time, that, that that's huge, as we're talking about. I think a, a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise be as interested in the statistical side of things would would understand the implications of being outside the top four when you have this sport that's dominated right now by five players. Yeah, and I think that you're right to also point at the tours in addition to Wimbledon because the tours could really stand to do a better job of promoting the events that aren't the very biggest events, and you know, especially when they're not Masters or Premier level. And what a great opportunity this week to do it. And I, I agree that they will be talking about it, sort of the PR people. People will be asking questions at the tournaments, but to not actually have the numbers at their fingertips or official ones is, is, is a detriment. Yeah, absolutely. So... We probably have talked enough about Federer and Wimbledon seeding, so let's let's stick with these grass court numbers for a minute. But let's switch over to the women because we have a lot of really interesting stuff happening on the women's side this week. In Majorca, uh, Victoria Azarenka is playing her first event in a year. Sabine Lisicki, who of course has had tremendous results on grass in the past, she's back as a wild card in Majorca. Uh, Petra Kvitova is playing her first event on grass and. I mean, that's huge. And in a tournament that's been just demolished by injuries in Birmingham, um, Kvitova is a two-time former Grand Slam champ who doesn't even get a seed, speaking of of seedings being inaccurate. Two-time Wimbledon champ, yeah. Two-time Wimbledon champ. So it is interesting in the context of this this Wimbledon seeding issue that you're going to have these three women. I, I don't think there's any scenarios that get them seeded for Wimbledon. So you'll have these three who might be the three best grass court players in the tournament. You know, I might be saying too much about Lisicki right now since she really struggled before her layoff and she's just now coming back. But 
all three of them are threats on the surface, and all three will be outside the 32 seeds. Um, how much do you think, when when you're looking at something like Azarenka's comeback, Lisicki's comeback, um, how much do you think it will it, it, a grass court specific rating should matter when we're evaluating players like this? I mean, obviously we don't have that much data on on grass, so the the Elo ratings have to come up with are have a lot of variance to them. Um, but do you think because of her past success, someone like Lisicki is instantly a threat again on the surface? I mean, Lisicki, I think, is the poster child for why you would want to look at grass court ratings. I, I can think of several Wimbledons where she came in having done very little in the previous 52 weeks, except maybe in the warm-up tournaments on grass, and then was instantly her not just successful, but dominant in the early round self again at Wimbledon and just looks so comfortable again being on the courts there. I also think the one of the potential weaknesses of focusing too much on past grass results is that there has been a lot of, of evidence on other courts of how players are doing since the last grass season, whereas for players who have been out for a while, their grass results are among their more recent results, or they don't suffer as much from the the datedness of those results as they do for other players because there just aren't many results period to look at so i think for these three you know for azarenka grass wasn't her best surface although she did have some good results there but for kvitova and lasicki i think it it's probably more powerful than for other players to see what their grass results are now it could be they're just not up to their full level period but that wouldn't be so much because we're focusing on grass results. It's just because we're focusing on old results because we don't have much new information about them. Yeah, and we talked about this several weeks ago when I wrote something for The Economist about Sharapova's return. I, I ran some numbers on players who'd missed. I think my, my cutoff was a six-month layoff for any reason, injury, pregnancy, doping, doping bans, whatever. And I found that immediately on return, players were performing at a level of about 200 ELO points less than their current level, which is a pretty major drop. And after their first five matches back or so, uh, they were performing 100 points lower. So just to put that in concrete terms, I've got grass-specific ELO ratings for the women. And this is all on Tennis Abstract for both men and women. You can sort my ELO rating tables by overall and hard clay and grass-specific numbers. So of all players, which includes Serena and Sharapova and Azarenka, Azarenka is fifth in in grass court ELO, and Serena's number one, Sharapova's number two, so should probably add two to all these rankings to accommodate these two ladies who aren't playing this year. But Azarenka's fifth, if, if you dropped her down 200 points, then looks like she goes down to the, the high 20s or so, maybe 22. Uh, Lisicki... Lisicki is two spots below that right now at seventh if she's playing the same way she was before the layoff. If you drop her 200 points, then she falls down a long way. We're talking probably 40th or so in the field. Actually, pretty similar to Jeannie Bouchard, who is her first opponent. If you drop her down 100 points, even that puts her at the tail end of the top 20, which actually feels about right. Sabine Lisicki coming back on grass as the, I don't know, number 18 or so best player in the world. I can, I can endorse that with what common sense I can muster. Sounds right to me. Yeah. Um, now, a couple other women on grass who I think we'll all be watching are the two ladies who won yesterday. Uh, one is Donna Bekic, who won in Nottingham, beating Johanna Conta, who I don't think anyone expected. 
Uh, and the other one is Anna Kontavite, who beats Natalia Viklyantseva in Hertogenbosch. Man, this is a this is a brutal week for player and tournament name pronunciation. So I apologize to those of you who know how badly I'm mangling them. <laughs> but Kontavite, and we have ignorance is bliss for me here. <laughs> yeah. Um, ignorance is bliss, which is why I'm proud to be an American. Um, so we haven't even started talking about um, about Auger Aliasim yet, but we'll get there. So Vekic, Kontavite. I've been a Kontavite fan for a while. I think I saw her at Wimbledon qualifying two or three years ago. And it, it's funny because she plays a very aggressive game. I, I actually think she, she plays a lot like Sharapova. And that's typically not a style that I like a lot. But for some reason, I do enjoy watching her. Uh, she played really well in the final. To her advantage, Vikliansova was not that great, and she's also a pretty low-ranked player to be reaching a final at this level. But that puts Kontavite in the top 40, I believe, for the first time. Um, she's had a great year. She's mostly been winning at international-level tournaments, but uh, she's been a big factor, um, good matching in Sharapova in Stuttgart, I believe, in Sharapova's first tournament back. Uh, if if someone is to come along and pull an Ostapenko at Wimbledon, I think she's the the number one player to watch. Uh, she's going to be a big threat there. Vekic, I'm not so sure about. I mean, as you pointed out earlier, Carl, uh, you have a lot of times in tennis matches where just one or two points will determine the the result of the match, and we end up reading too much in, into the result when really what we should have read into it is it was, it was really close. And Vekic had really close matches in her last two rounds against um, Safarova in the semifinals and against Kanta in the finals. Do you think that Vekic can be a threat uh, beyond this kind of fluky run at an international level event? I mean, sure, she can. But yeah, I, I don't make too much of it either. I, I think despite the French Open for much of the draw kind of playing to form until the surprising winner, Vastapenko, I, I still see most women's draws now as being pretty open and not knowing what to make of some of these returning players makes it all the more so. So, uh, yeah, I, I think Vekic could be a threat, but but I absolutely discount runs that are less dominant. Uh, it is interesting, too, with Vekic. I think a lot of people had started to write her off because she had a big breakthrough, I think, when she was 17. I don't, I don't know exactly when it was that she won her first title, but she was dominating Tashkent, of all places, for a couple of years, and she looked like a big prospect, but then when she didn't back that up, it was easy to group her in with all these other young players who've come along over the years and had one good run in international or one deep run at a bigger tournament just to, to fade away. And she looked like she was following that pattern, especially since I think a lot of fans think of her just as Stan Wawrinka's girlfriend and think less of her because I mean, she's in the news more for that than because of her own play. But she's still just now 21. And to put that in perspective, in, of course, Yelena Ostapenko we were talking about last week, she's incredibly young for what she's achieved. She's only one year younger. Kontavite, who we're all hearing about for the first time this year, is six months older than Vekic, so tons of time for her to develop. She's still outside the top 50, I believe, so not not someone you'd consider as a big threat at Wimbledon this year, but I think this week served as a good reminder, even if she did get a little lucky to, to end up winning the event, that she's she's someone to continue watching in the future. She hasn't She's not someone you can entirely write off. 
Um, yeah, and I think as we've said for for both men and women, when they've achieved something young, even if it then takes them some time to uh, to get back there, and they struggle for whatever whatever reason, and could be injury, it's it's meaningful that they achieved it, and that's an important signal. And different players follow different paths. I mean, we right now she the, the player she just beat Kanta in the final. Uh, Kanta was struggling for years uh, and not really living up to her potential. Sam Stozer was a late developer. Franski Avoni, Lina, uh, we talked about Siegemund in some of the early episodes of this podcast. Uh, Lucic Broni is, is, is having an incredible run in her 30s this year. So certainly never makes sense to count someone out who has shown flashes of greatness. And we're talking about someone in their young 20s, not their late 20s or 30s. So certainly time for her to achieve her potential. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of players saw what Ostapenko did. And obviously that can't motivate you to suddenly become a much better tennis player. But for all the promising women of that generation, including Kontavai Vekic, um, Daria Kazakina, of course, would be near the top of this list. They're they're all people who a few years ago would have looked at the results in the WTA tour with you know someone like Flavia Panetta breaking through and winning a, a Grand Slam and thinking that they might be working for six years or eight years before they could they could hope to really be at the top of the game. And now all of a sudden, Ostapenko wins a Grand Slam. It's sort of like the equation has changed, and so I think Kazakina has said it. it, it it raises the bar for what she can accomplish right now. And it will be interesting to see if, if some of these girls do do actually follow through on that or if it's just you know something that's going to cause more disappointment when they find that they're going to keep losing to older players. But a lot of potential there. Um, speaking of, I briefly mentioned the, the, all the injuries that hit Birmingham. It, it, it was slated to be a tremendously strong premier event, as Birmingham usually is. Kerber was going to be there. Halep was going to be there. We mentioned... Kvitova's playing, and I mean, Sharapova was going to take a wild card before she got hurt, and she'll miss the whole grass season. But I think now there have been like 10 or 11 injury withdrawals, including Ostapenko also. Ostapenko was actually Sharapova's replacement, which is a, a pretty nice thing for a, an event to be able to do, is to add the woman who just won a Grand Slam. But she pulled out as well. So it's a, a relatively weak field in Birmingham uh, with Kerber and Halep both out. Big opportunity for Kvitova. But another injury that I think we have more to say about is David Goffin. Uh, he he tripped on a tarp in the middle of his fourth round match, I think it was, or third round match at um, Roland Garros. And he had to miss, he had to pull out of that match. Of course, uh, didn't play, was going to miss the next few weeks. The injury wasn't as bad as it initially looked, but he's out of Wimbledon as well. And that whole generation that's kind of become passed over, the, the lost boys, if you want to use that name, uh, you have a lot of guys with injury problems. Of course, Del Potro, huge issues over the years. Kane Shikori seems very fragile. Milos Ronish has had some ongoing issues that may still be affecting him now. Goffin doesn't quite fit in that group because it's not that he seems fragile. It seems like something really unfortunate happened. But... Um, but he, he did unfortunately find himself grouped with them in the sense that he is injured and unable to, to play at a time when he should be threatening. It seems like Goffin has been playing better and better. Uh, he had a, a big opportunity to reach the fourth round and play Dominic Team, who he could have beaten. Uh, so a huge blow to him to be injured when he was. 
a few things to talk about them there, Carl. The first thing is is the is those tarps and just injuries and slams in general. I think we can all agree those tarps are stupid, even if, <laughs> even if yes. Stefan isn't going to. Uh, he, he's not going to sue the French Open. I don't think. I mean, it, according to the rules, I think uh, the tournament director said that players are supposed to be aware of them. But it's kind of like. Do you remember, Carl, the first couple of years when the new Houston Astros stadium opened and there was that bizarre hill in deep center field? Yep. I mean, they were just asking for injuries. Everyone knew they were asking for injuries. And I forget whether anyone actually did get seriously injured on that hill, but there were issues because, of course, there are going to be issues if you put something dangerous on the playing surface. So even if players are supposed to know not to run all the way to the wall... Of course, they're going to run also all the way to a wall, especially at the biggest clay tournament in the world. So I have to put the blame there on the French Open. That's ridiculous. I mean, there, there's no way players are going to know to stop two steps before the wall any more than a center fielder is going to stop chasing after a long fly ball because he's supposed to know that the hill is here and not 10 feet away or 10 feet closer. Yeah, and maybe a hill makes a stadium interesting. Maybe at least there was a, a reason for it, not that it made any sense, but... As far as I can tell, the only sense for the tarp is that it maybe makes it slightly faster because they haven't come up with another way to make it just as fast to get the tarps down when it's raining, which isn't even that important on a clay court. And it just – the it, I, I haven't heard a good argument articulated, and I can't imagine there is a good argument for why you would need to have them there. Yeah, I can't imagine there is one either, uh, especially since with, with clay courts, there's such a small window in which you can put the tarps down. It seems like often there are problems with courts when they don't get the tarps down fast enough if, say, it starts raining overnight. So they won't even end up using them, and you'll still have to wait for the court to dry off. It's it's bizarre all around. But the bigger picture issue, this is sort of the, the insta-take from every traditional tennis pundit, is always it slams, too many players are getting injured. Um, too many retirements, too many withdrawals, even aside from these things that we can quantify, injuries and withdrawals, you have players who are, you can call them the walking wounded, like Del Potro, who was, in his match against Nicolas Almagro, people were joking that it was just a matter of who was going to retire first, and then Almagro ended up having serious problems, which made the, made the, the jokes kind of bittersweet, but Del Potro was essentially injured in that match, he wasn't able to play his best against Murray, so you have these varying levels of injuries, but the the pundit take always seems to be there's too many of them. Uh, I don't know what the solution would be to that, to just have players be less injured, but what's your take there, Carl? Is this a, is this a new problem? Is, it, is this something that the tennis establishment should somehow take action about? Well, I, I await your research that, that really quantifies this. What we've seen in terms of withdrawals and retirements is not historically aberrant. As you say, there are injuries where players still complete matches, and there are also just withdrawals from the draw entirely that don't show up as walkovers. Uh, so so that, that doesn't capture everything, certainly. But I think it's really difficult to say exactly what they're supposed to do. I mean, the... I'm a Mets fan to to talk briefly about a, a non-tennis sport and there you know they've had enormous injury problems but it's that's a team it's up to the team to have good fitness systems and health systems and 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 the right doctors in place and all these are individual practitioners the tour does have support 
on site and probably better than it than it ever had before in terms of having physios around and and medical support. Uh, their players are getting a lot of advice from the tour that probably previous generations didn't, including the ATP University for players who break through to a certain ranking level each year. And some of what they cover is how to stay healthy. And there's also plenty of evidence that the lost boys or the passed over generation aside, players are able to play for longer and stay fit for longer. And even some players who at times have had injury problems are still thriving in their 30s, like Nadal. Uh, Andy Murray had to miss some time. Federer had to miss some time. And, and they're two of the best players in the world still. So it, it, I think we'd, we'd see more of a, an, a justified outcry if players were getting so injured that they were retiring young. And we're not seeing a whole lot of that. And I mean retiring in the broader sense of the word, not the retiring from from a match, but retiring from the sport. There have also been players who've been out, especially on the women's side, for reasons having nothing to do with injury on court, including Azarenka and Serena Williams uh, to have children, and that was for Kim Kleisters as well, and uh, Kvitova because she was attacked in an incident having nothing to do with tennis either. So um, it, it's not a really coherent argument. The one thing you hear sometimes is the best of five case, that best of five is dangerous. But players also get a day off between matches at majors that they don't at the uh, tour events with best of three. And the complaints are often made about injuries on the women's side, which doesn't have best of five. So I, I think more study would need to be done before ditching best of five entirely on these grounds anyway. Yeah, and I think that players are are maxing out what their bodies can do, and that doesn't matter whether it's best of three or best of five. Uh, and it's interesting, the point you make, that the support for players, both with on-court physios during matches and just in the longer term with, with sports medicine being better than it ever has been in the past, in a way that makes it easier for players to push themselves to the max and run the risk of getting injured because they can be more confident that the doctors can fix them up and put them back on the court in, you know, a couple weeks or six months or a year in the case of Del Potro. And I'm reminded of, of the old economics line. It shows up in virtually every pop economics book you'll ever read that if you want people to slow down, if you want drivers to slow down, let's say the, the first thing you should do is take out the, take out the airbag and in the extreme case, replace the airbag with a giant knife on the steering wheel. So Instead of making it safer for people to screw up or people to make risky decisions like drive really fast or take blind corners or whatever because they know they will be safe with that airbag in front of them, take that safety away and the incentives totally change. And what we've seen now is the tennis equivalent of airbags have gotten better and safer and more reliable than they ever have been. And the fact that players can continue playing for so long means that even if even if someone like Del Potro does end up missing three years out of the middle of his career, if the, if the doctors have been able to put him back together well enough, we could have another five, six years of Del Potro on tour. And compared to the equivalent player from 20 years ago, Del Potro might end up with the, with the longer, more successful career. I mean, there's a lot of counterfactuals in there. Of course, if Del Potro managed to stay healthy, he might be number one right now. We'll never know. He might not be the best example, but you make a great point that players are not retiring in, in the 
the career ending sense. I mean, it seems like if anything, no one's retiring. It doesn't. It almost doesn't make sense that so many players are sticking around as long as they are. That we have Tommy Haas doing his retirement tour at age thirty nine. Um, guys who fade away end up coming back to take another shot at it, like Nico Almagro, who I mean, was top 10 for a while. Now he's having a hard time even fighting his way back into the top 50, but sounds like he's going to come back again after this current injury. So longevity has changed the equation so much. Yeah, and there's even, again, this is something that could be studied more rigorously than us just speculating about it, but there's even the potential that having some time away, even if it's involuntary for injury, then extends your career because you have less total wear on your body. And there, it's not obvious that's true, and it might only be true for some players, but there's evidence of that or, or some evidence of that from other sports too, that the same players, uh, players at the same age are at different levels of health, partially depending on just how much, uh, how many miles, to use the cliche, they put on their body to that point. And one of the points I wanted to make about the all these Birmingham withdrawals is that withdrawals aren't all created equally. So some of the things that pundits want to see happen, like let's say a less cramped schedule or less pressure on players to, to play 20 to 30 events a year. Um, of course, no one wants to see players pull out of slams in the middle of the event. No one wants to see mid-match retirements. That stuff has picked up over the last generation or two. I mean, if you look back at the 80s and early 90s, there were only a couple retirements or withdrawals per slam, and now there's quite a few more than that. But when you look at the pre-tournament withdrawals, like these 10-plus that there were in Birmingham, then even though it sounds like it supports the point that injuries have gotten so bad, it actually means that players are taking more control of their schedule. So... Someone like Simona Halep, who's had these nagging ankle injuries for a while now, she's probably making the smart choice. Even if she could go play Birmingham, she's probably going to be a bigger threat at Wimbledon if she takes that extra week off. And to some degree, you could say that about all these players. And we're seeing that especially with so many older players at the top of the game that with the ATP and WTA rules, they have more control over their schedules. Federer can skip the whole clay season without any kind of penalty, really. Because he, according to the rules, he has played so many matches, he can make these choices to pull out whatever Masters events he wants to. Um, When players do have that control, then they do choose to play easier schedules. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the powers that be should cut out a lot of events. It just means that some of the Premiers and Masters might maybe wouldn't have quite as strong of draws if every player was was making a smart choice every week. And if there is a solution for the the tennis establishment, the ATP, the WTA, to make, it might just be to relax those requirements a little bit. I mean, every player who's healthy enough to play is going to want to show up when there's a 1,000 points on the line, especially on their preferred surface. So no matter what the rules are, most of the top players are going to show up for Cincinnati or Monte Carlo, or whatever. Monte Carlo is a great example because, as it is now, it isn't required, but pretty much every good play player shows up. But now you have maybe 10% or 20% better draws because every player is required to play, and maybe that does feed into more injuries and more problems in the long term, and that seems like an easy thing to fix. But in general, as, as you pointed out in the beginning of this discussion, Players are their own teams. They have to make those decisions for themselves. The only thing they're trying to maximize is their own 
success, whether we're talking short-term or long-term. And if anybody's to blame for this, it's players that are taking the wrong sorts of risks because they're the only ones who are really accountable for, for how they how they schedule and how they perform in the long term. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned that retirements and withdrawals are up or walkovers are up, but players in the past, in addition to retiring much younger on average, would sometimes skip whole big chunks of the season. We talked earlier about clay players skipping grass. Lots of players skipped Australia. Uh, there were players who, who chose world team tennis over uh, certain events. So it, we actually are getting more of the top players at events than we used to. And maybe it's too much and maybe it's gone too far in terms of, of forcing them to not really forcing them to, but penalizing them if they don't show up to certain matches, to certain events. Um, but it does seem like for these events, these often are strategic withdrawals and, and it does in, in, increase and not decrease the chance that we see them at their best at the next major. Uh, having said all that, while we're recording this, Nick Kyrgios just lost a set to Donald Young and then withdrew uh, from his event this week and uh, <clears throat> is, is another young player who has had some injury problems already. So uh, I don't know, maybe he too will, will miss time over the years and yet we'll be talking on this podcast in 20 years about Nick Kyrgios's uh, retirement run in his 40s. Yeah. <laughs> He could he could come back then maybe by then he'll figure out how to care about tennis you know I, I don't know if we want to delve into this but he did just drop the bomb on the tennis community that he, he claimed to have tanked like one third of his events over the past year something like that and it seems like kind of a cheap thing to say when you've already lost those matches that you weren't really trying I mean maybe that's just his ego talking who knows and not specifying but, them right so anyone who beat him is wondering now if that covers him. Yeah, exactly. It, 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 like many things, Curiosis said he obviously did not think it through that much beforehand, and he will very possibly regret it later. Um, I, I would love to hear him say that he also tanked 10% of the matches he won, including the two times he beat Djokovic this year. That would really troll tennis. Yeah, I, I watched, I, I want to say it was in Tokyo last year against Ryan Harrison. Uh, I, he won. But I think that was one of the one of the ten percent you're talking about that he tanked and still won. <laughs> he, he, he made a he made a real effort in about two games, and that was all it took. It's like the uh, tanking equivalent of the Almagro Del Potro match. What happens when neither player wants to win? Although that wasn't the case exactly. with Harrison, it just was poor play, I assume. Yeah, and Kyrgios is so talented on serve that he doesn't really have to try. I mean, I, I still have to see to believe any time that he's broken. It, if you just hear about it, it doesn't seem possible. Well, it probably means he hit a bunch of dumb shots on his next shot. Definitely. That is often the case. So we don't have a lot of time left this week. Um, one thing that we wanted to talk about that we're not going to get to is various measures of aggression. I wrote an article last week uh, trying to quantify just how aggressive Yelena Ostapenko is and showing that she is really, really aggressive, as in possibly more so than Petra Kvitova, who was the most aggressive player on tour before Ostapenko broke through. So I hope to do a little more work on that this week, and we can revisit that topic next week. But before we let you go, we want to talk about some young players who hopefully will not be fragile and have ongoing injury issues for their career. Um, the big one is the 16-year-old Canadian Felix Auger-Aliassime, 
Uh, he played the Lyon challenger, which is one of the three clay court challengers this week. He does, I don't really think of him as a clay court guy. I mean, he grew up in Canada, really big game, so he seems like he'd be more successful on hard courts. But he he beat the young Norwegian, Kasper Rude, in the quarterfinals. Rude, of course, is another uh, big prospect. And then he he just destroyed guys in the semifinals and finals. It was Alexander Nedavyasov in the semis, and then Matthias Borg in the final. So not a really tough draw, as was the case with Lorenzi that we were talking about before, but it is a challenger. Um, the guy is 16. I think he's the seventh youngest player to uh, win a challenger, and he's doing it at a time when challenger, challenger players are a little bit older as well than they were when, say, Nadal won a challenger at a similar age, um, 10, 12, 13 years ago, however long ago that was. So in a way, it's a little, even a little bit more impressive that, that Felix is doing it now. Um, and that moves him up to, I think, 231 in the world. So a big accomplishment for him then. then. And that puts him right in the conversation for the next-gen finals. I don't know if he, he'll, he'll be a factor with without having played too much, but he certainly fits with the ATP's official next-gen hashtag. Um, it looks like he Carl, is he the only guy under seventeen in the top one thousand. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, Remarkable. Are you looking at the? Are you looking at the age rankings on my site? On live tennis. Okay, um, for for Carl and for anyone else listening, there's an, a, a nifty little report that I generate every week on Tennis Abstract, which is rankings by age for every young age group. So you can see that that Felix is the top-ranked guy under 18. Uh, it looks like there's one other guy at 893, Santiago Fa Rodriguez Taverna of Argentina. Uh, is, is still... No, he's, he's turning no, 18 he's in July. I can't do math and talk at the same time. So, actually, Rudolf Molikar. Yes, number 901. Yeah. He is two months younger than Felix, but... Just a little bit further down in the rankings. Good, <laughs> good 670 spots. Uh, Which means he's won so, a handful of Futures matches, basically. Yeah, pretty much. You don't have to win a lot of matches to be 9-1. You do have to be pretty good at tennis, but don't you don't have to prove it a lot to get to that point. Um, have you seen Felix play, Carl? I think I've only seen highlights. I haven't seen a whole match. What, what am I missing? Well, I haven't seen him a lot either. I, I have the the Felix Kasparud quarterfinal queued up. I'm hoping to, to watch that sometime this week in its entirety. Um, the highlights I've seen, it looks like he has a really big game, obviously incredibly promising if he's accomplished what he has already. Um, of course, there there's a... We were talking about different sorts of forecasting last week, and we don't need to recap all that now, but this is a good example where... You could say he's he's winning his first challenger at this almost exactly the same age that Rafael Nadal did, and of course that would be a pretty good career trajectory for a young player to follow in the path of Rafa. But on the other hand, the guy who always comes up in these conversations as well is Richard Gasquet, who put together what for most people would be a nice career, but compared to what was expected of him at this age when he was winning challenges as a 16-year-old, it's been a bit of a disappointment that Gasquet has never won a slam. Um, never made a final. Never made a final, yeah. It hasn't really come close to what people expected of him. So there's, there's a lot of possible outcomes for someone like that, performing as well as his at, at 16, but it does seem particularly impressive to be doing so 
now when, as you point out, he's he's the youngest guy in the top 900, and here he is at, at 231. Um, what do you think would co- would constitute a good rest of the season for a guy like that? I mean, he's probably not going to play a full schedule, but would would you think he should be he should be winning more as a sixteen young seventeen year old at this point? Well, I think he could target finishing the top one hundred. I mean, he's something like one hundred thirtieth in the race, and finishing the top one hundred means direct entry into slam draws next year. So I think that's that's achievable. Um, and I, he's going to presumably also be entering the juniors draws and could, could be the favorite in both of those remaining, uh, junior grand slams this year. So not that that'll affect his ranking, but those are always interesting benchmarks against his fellow youngsters. Yeah. And just, just to emphasize how strong that win against Casper Ruud is, I mean, Casper is aged out of the juniors, I believe. Um, but he is, Casper is almost as impressive among 18-year-olds as Felix is among 16-year-olds. Of, of people who aren't yet 19, uh, there's only three people in the top 200, and Casper is on the brink of the top 100. So uh, obviously it wasn't good enough to beat Felix this week, which came as a surprise to me, but he's knocking on the door as well. And he's someone who will be in the mix for the next-gen finals uh, at the end of the year. Um, Carl, I know we don't have an unlimited amount of time to do a Super Size episode like we did last week, but anything else you want to touch on before we wrap things up for this episode? Uh, two really quick things. One, a little unfair for anyone who you referenced people who had been critical of Donna Vekic because she was better known for uh, being Stan Wawrinka's girlfriend than her play. That, that's... Very unfair. Lots of tennis players date each other. Um, I really think that Vavrinka, if anything, should have been better known for that relationship given the context around it, which I'm not going to get to at the end of the episode. So um, glad to see her getting um, an accomplishment last week and potentially more in the future. And uh, she never stopped being a great tennis player. Um, and then secondly, uh, the... The other potential reason besides Wimbledon seedings and uh, just generally liking watching Federer play to pay attention to him at these tournaments is he's got to win some of these smaller ones if he's going to challenge uh, the all-time records for for titles and for match wins. Um, Jimmy Connors really ran up the score on at the small events, and I don't think these are among the top goals for Federer, but with so much that he's accomplished and with him playing like the, one of the two best players in the world this year, it's starting to seem like the time horizon has extended. He really could at least keep that conversation alive. So to, to really have a chance, though, when he is playing a guy outside the top 100, only a few matches from winning a title, those are, those are the ones he's going to have to win to do it. Yeah, it is kind of a shame that tennis's big numbers like that aren't bigger. If you think about the the sort of magic numbers in tennis that are the equivalents of like baseball home run records or something like that, you have the the career Grand Slam titles. So people are thinking in terms of seventeen or eighteen or twenty three or the the numbers that that loom large over the sport over the last decade or so. But it's really just those. Like I. I as a stat head, you'd think I'd, I'd know more, but I can't tell you what the what the exact record is for something like 
Connor's career titles record. Um, and, and it is a shame. Part of it is because the stats were kept so poorly. Like when I was looking this up, I, there were different numbers on different sites depending on what year they were writing about it. And you mentioned all the work done by the the open era ranking site and it is a lot of work because especially in the early years of professional tennis the records weren't kept well and it wasn't totally clear what counted as a tour event and what didn't so uh i think one way to make the those records count more would be for someone from the more modern era of modern tennis to actually hold the records and then there would be less of that kind of ambiguity and shadiness to it yeah and maybe this is a, a bigger topic for another day, but and I've I've never liked how much the slams dominate the sport. It seems like there's so much great tennis going on year-round. But in a way, the Grand Slams are the one thing that have pretty much stayed consistent over the years. So if, if you want to have a timeless record, like a baseball home run record, then it has to be at the slams because, there, I mean, 40 years ago, there weren't masters. I mean, there was an equivalent sort of super tour, but the slams are the same for men and women. They've been the same for events for a century, basically. And it's the one thing that's that, that you, where you can, at least in some way, compare Federer to Labor to Tilden if you really want to. I mean, obviously, there's problems there as well, but there's fewer problems than if you wanted to do something really crazy, like compare an entire career with a performance between those guys from different eras. Yeah, so. although if you really dig into the slam record books, you find the weird best of three, the weird 64 or 32 player draws. But yes, relative to the other parts of tennis, they've changed a lot less. Yeah, and you've only scratched the surface of the weirdness just in slams, but like I said, probably a subject for another day. Um, but if it's weird and if it's analytical, you can trust that we will get there on the Tennis After I podcast. Our new motto. So... That is our new motto. Last week it was caution on the caution. This week is weird and analytical. Uh, we are we are going for the mainstream, folks. I'm glad you you locked on early. Carl, thank you as always for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks everyone for listening. This has been the Tennis Abstract Podcast, and we will see you next week.